Hi, welcome back to the CIO Show. I'm David Binning, Associate Editor of CIO. In this, the second of our two-part episode on women in IT, we delve a little deeper into what sexual discrimination actually looks like in the industry, while continuing the broader conversation about diversity. And we also share some important facts that um, I think really challenge some of the key assumptions in this debate. Mari Johnson is the Managing Director of the Centre for Digital Business. She's one of Australia's most influential women in technology and business and is an authority on many important topics, including the real-world applications of artificial intelligence. And uh, as, as we've noted before, she's the brains behind Nadia, the AI-driven avatar developed for the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Mari, welcome back to the CIO Show. Hey, David. Thank you so much for having me back. Oh, welcome. Uh, so you, you've had a you know an extensive career as, as a technology leader, and no doubt when you started out, it was probably you know uh, more than a little unusual for you to encounter other women like yourself, right? Well, that's right. And maybe what a lot of people don't really know is some of the background story. Mm. And I think that probably you know is equally important for people to hear about. So. You know, encountering other women in technology for me was, um, it was a long journey. So yes, there, in some ways a bit of a back the front story. So mm. I was married as a teenager. Oh, really? <laughs> and um, um, still happily married. You, don't hear, that, you don't hear that so often these days, do you? <laughs> no, no. Um, 40, 42 years, right? So, right, right. Um, and my husband was doing engineering Mm -hmm. and we had our first baby (laughs) and we were living in a caravan in the western, in the western (laughs) suburbs of Sydney, so in a, someone's backyard. Um, my husband went on to like Duxie's engineering degree. Right. And then joined the Air Force as an aeronautical engineer. And that sort of started our sort of, you know, journey around Australia and around the world. Um, By then we had two children, two daughters. And what that meant for me was, you know, an opportunity really to look at things differently. I mean, I had started, I did buoyant maths and science at school, so all science um, at school, science and maths, and a lifelong interest in space. Right. Um, and I still, I still have that interest in space, and I can talk about that. <laughs> but um, from a career perspective, I studied then for twelve years. Mm-hmm. As we moved around Australia, I uh, had the opportunity. I took up whatever jobs were available, yeah. um, and worked with the, you know, the, the children as we're moving around, and you know, they're growing up, they're going to school, yeah. um, doing during my courses at times um, online was a bit of a different experience. But when we ended up in Melbourne, um, then I did my MBA Mm -hmm. and at the Melbourne Business School. And I funded that myself. So this was not a a corporate, uh, you know, a corporate thing. I funded it myself, which meant that if I didn't succeed, then there was a lot riding on that, not yeah. only for me personally, but for the family. Sure. So, so there was a real burn, if you like, a mm. personal tenacity to sort of 
continue and to and, and to succeed. Yeah. And um, um, anyway, so so that took me into a lot of different workplaces and organisations, really, to to get to that point. Yes, and it, and it took you overseas too, didn't it? That's right. So um, when by the time I you know finished my MBA and I had a, I was working in a num- number of areas that um, you know. Uh, the year, the year two thousand came along with a big you know a big interest in mm. you know uh, the tech the tech boom yeah. the year two thousand and all all of that so I continued to take up opportunities on really the the, the back of the MBA yeah and um, and I have to say just going back to sort of um, what 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 you study and what you learn mm. my first degree was in politics. And international relations, so really deep grounding in policy. Yeah. My MBA, I did um, e-commerce, uh, innovation, technology, as I was in the midst of doing um, a whole range of different e-business projects at that time. So, so this diversity in training, I think, is incredibly important. Yeah. So, I had the opportunity. Well, that time I was in Melbourne. Uh, had an opportunity to come to Canberra and take up um, a senior executive role in government and the opportunity to talk about technology in forums uh, hosted by the United Nations and also by APEC Mm. and some of the big Microsoft global forums. And Microsoft um, invited me to join them in Microsoft in Seattle to head up their worldwide public services and e-government business and the conversation there so was huge, really about a huge job. Yeah, one of, one of the was, biggest tech companies ever. Yeah, it was a it was a huge honour. Yeah, um, and actually a lot of fun. Some phenomenal phenomenal people. Yeah, and with the opportunity to put together for Microsoft, together with this amazing global team that Microsoft had mm. still has, yeah. the worldwide public services and e-government strategy, which was launched by Bill Gates himself right. at a, a forum in, in Lisbon. Yes. And that was a collaborative effort to bring together the perspectives of the Microsoft leadership team around the world on what technology would be able to do mm. and could do for the benefit of citizens yes. um, and the welfare of citizens. Yes. And so that was a really different way of having a conversation about technology that really took us beyond the enterprise sure. to bring it to more what does technology mean for the administration of a country mm. and um, the support of democracy. Sure. And, and, and a really, you know, the real sort of human um, applications of, of, of technology for, you know, benefiting, benefiting humankind. And, of course, that, 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 that ultimately led you to, you know, being – the person behind the development of Nadia, the AI-driven avatar for the National Disability uh, Insurance Scheme, and obviously those experiences have you know further sort of shaped your you know, your understanding about the potential for technology to benefit um, people, but also you know back to, to the sort of broader point of, of diversity and inclusivity. Um, you know the role of technology in helping people that are that are differently abled. That's, that's right. And when we look at technology in that in that way, one of the 
questions that um, you know we're looking at at the NDIS was given you know the human rights which we've spoken about before and the uh, human rights of people to be able to you know engage not only with the NDIS but with all the systems of society in a way that um, is contextual for their needs. It meant that we really had to look at what the human experience was and to look at that quite quite differently. Yeah. And so what I was able to do was to, in highlighting these issues with the, um, I guess, the broader community, with the NDIS, is really use the platform that, if you like, I had been working on over my career, the opportunity to work with Microsoft, um, you know, back with the Australian government after that on the access card, talking about really quite complex and sometimes what we call wicked issues mm. in a way that people really understand. And I was able to use that platform then in taking those conversations about different ways of um, if you like understanding the human experience yeah. um, and and how that how that is really fundamental to people being able to engage engage with not only the NDIs but systems of society. Yeah. I mean, and I have family with disability, and so you know we all we all see these things often through our own lived experience, mm-hmm. and what the experience with working with phenomenal people with disability, um, not only at the NDIS, but with the NDIS, so the community, was as we as we age and when we are in different situations, we, we often have limited or constrained abilities. Yeah. So when you're in a car, you, you know, can't use your hands in making phone calls. Um, you can't see screens, so you're a lot more on voice-activated commands. Yeah. And these type of technologies really are fundamental to the way in which people with disability rely on mm. every day mm. Um, mm. to, you know, to engage and communicate with society. So what I was trying to do also is to say it's not about making something special. It's about making something ordinary that everybody can use. Yeah. And when we make it ordinary, then it drives down the cost. Sure. And that sense really came from people with disability themselves. Um, and that's, that's how they started to explain the concept of Nadia, a very ordinary conversation. And then we made that into a, a human-like interface. Yeah, well, it's, so, it's, certainly, it's certainly a stunning example of... You know the the applications of the sort of applications of technology that you know not not everyone would sort of assume. You know, um, and what I'm talking about is that is, is that sort of that human element and that human application. And I'm, I'm, I wonder whether um, you know approaching you know, the you know the technology industry going forward in a more sort of holistic, broader asking you know broader questions about diversity whether it's people that are differently abled or racial diversity or as this sort of conversation started out in part one and now in part two gender diversity whether whether maybe the you know the gender question may end up may end up being um resolved if we if we look at this from a a much sort of bigger you know with a much sort of bigger lens that's that's right i mean 
gender diversity is critically important um, as part of a, a broader conversation about, you know, diversity in science and technology. And that's uh, diversity around uh, people's experiences, you know, um, cultural diversity. We see some very interesting um, perspectives that are brought by um, bringing together different cultural diversity. Mm. And what that actually does is, you know, you look look at problems or opportunities in completely different ways. But the way in which we make people... um, feel included and actually included then Mm. perhaps takes on a different type of approach so the way in which we even count um you know women in uh, it what other methodologies that are used to you know to come up with those numbers do we actually are we actually counting um people in the right way you know um you know we 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 spoke uh, earlier about um you know, including perhaps in those numbers, um, people who are in the nursing profession mm. as a science technology based profession. Yeah. And if we do that, then perhaps we, you know, we open up a, a bigger conversation that um, that profession, which is, you know, largely largely female, yeah. and sometimes there's comments about, is that a good thing? Well, I think it's a phenomenal thing. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, uh, and we we include those numbers. We include that profession yeah. um, about this about this whole this whole discussion, um, not not sort of unintentionally, not not excluded. But to your point about um, you know diversity around a disability, ab- absolutely, mm. because you know some of the big innovations um, in Australia around the world. We're driven by the rights of persons with disability. Mm. Even earlier in the year 2000, um, the introduction of SMS technology in Australia mm. was accelerated by the intervention of the Human Rights Commission, yep. where Telstra had SMS on its roadmap, yep. and the Human Rights Commission uh, basically said that as mobile technology was becoming more mainstream, that people who are hearing impaired and their families would not be able to enjoy this same um, utility, if you like. And so um, SMS was introduced as a way in which people people with hearing impairment and their families could communicate, you know, with mobile devices, even though uh, the hearing impairment obviously was was an issue. The text-based communication changed all that. So we have to keep reminding ourselves of these things, <laughs> um, you know, because it's incredibly important for for innovation as well as, you know, uh, social good that comes from inclusion. Yeah, well said. Mario, thanks so much for, uh, for joining us again on the CIO Show and we, um, of course, look forward to having you back again soon. David, thank you very much again for the opportunity. It's been fantastic. Great. Joining us now is Christy Struckman, who's a VP analyst with Gartner. Christy, welcome to the CIO Show. Thanks for having me, David. Now, Christy, we spoke recently about this idea of the death by a thousand cuts. It sounds sounds pretty ominous. Can you explain to me what um, what you mean by that in recent papers that you've written? Well, I'm glad that it sounds ominous <laughs> because it is. Yes, and it's a part of 
gender discrimination that we just don't talk enough about. Mm -hmm. And here's what I mean by that. There are a set of behaviors that I will um, go through some examples of in just a moment Mm -hmm. that in and of themselves don't don't make a woman think, oh, I have to go to HR. I have to report this behavior. But over time, when those behaviors persist and happen in different settings and in different contexts, what I learn, what I understand to be true is that I'm not valued by the organization. Mm -hmm. And so for an enterprise that's trying desperately to retain their great talent, If they don't address these behaviors, they're going to lose the great women that they have. Yeah, sure. And so, I mean, a lot of people focus on this this uh, issue of getting more women into tech, but I don't think enough people are having this conversation about how to retain them once they're there, which is kind of what you're getting at with this point, right? Absolutely. We do talk about inclusion, mm. um, which is what are the things that you can do to make women feel that they belong, and that they're valued. And this is the dark side of that inclusion conversation, which is, but what are the things that make people, make women feel that they're not included? Mm. And before I jump into these behaviors, David, I I do want to make one really important point, um, is that I'm talking about behaviors that marginalize women. Mm. And I'm going to talk about specific behaviors for women. But I do want to make sure that people understand that anybody can marginalize anybody. You know, men can marginalize women. Women can marginalize men. Women can marginalize women. Men can marginalize men. We we all can marginalize each other. Uh, and And it's important, obviously, to realize that we should be stopping as much of it. What I'm hoping to dig into just more specifically is women. So if it's okay with you, can I share you some, share some examples? Yes, indeed. Please do. Okay, so one that has been very much described in the last five years is mansplaining. Yes. Now, I'm actually trying to remove the word man from it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to take the word man out of it, uh, (laughs) and I think it's better to just call it over-explaining. Yeah, sure. Because we know know people of all genders, but sometimes it just takes them a little too long to get through a point. But actually, the point of over-explaining is is that assumption, and that's the critical word, that somebody doesn't understand or needs more information. So if I'm an expert, for example, on Office 365, and one of my colleagues makes it a point to explain a very well-understood construct around Office 365, what's the message to me? The message to me is is that you don't value my experience and my expertise. So over-explaining, and and the operative word there was the assumption that somebody doesn't understand. It could be simply predicated by, hey, just want to make sure, do you you understand this, you know, very specific uh, change that Microsoft is making? And the answer will either be yes or no, and either way, it's a much more um, respectful conversation. Sure. Let me give you another example. (laughs) Uh, so I call this one the unequal personality trait assessment. Right. That's quite a mouthful. Which is a lot of words, <laughs> <laughs> which is a mouthful. But what it refers to is, let's say that you and I are in the meeting and mm. we were getting frustrated 
by how long the conversation was going on and we just needed to move forward. And you might, you know, pound your hand on the table and say, oh, team, we just have to move on. Let's stop all this belly aching. Let's make a decision. Yep. Generally, the assessment is going to be that you are uh, a decisive person and that you're just trying to cut through the crap to yep. get the work done. Yep. Uh, many times a female's assessment will be that she is a word that begins with B. <laughs> we're, allowed to, we're, allowed to say, we're allowed to say bitch on the CIO show. It's fine. <laughs> oh, okay, great. Thank you for, thank you not, for your we We're not calling anyone bitches, but we can say the word. <laughs> okay, excellent, excellent. So the same behavior yes. being interpreted differently. Yes, um, that, what does that teach? That teaches the woman, well, uh, okay, so now I have to come up with a different way to express these things. Well, why doesn't the male have to come up with a different way, right? So it's that unequal assessment. Mm. Do you want another example? Sure. <laughs> yeah. I'll give you just one more. All I'll right. give you one more. Yeah. Um, so my idea. So what's, what's my idea? Let's say that, again, you and I were, were in a meeting and uh, we were talking about ways that we could um, seg- segment the network. Mm-hmm. We've, got a, we've got, a, got a problem and we need to you know, think about how we're going to segment the network. Yeah. And I offer a solution and you know, people just sort of keep the conversation going. And then about five minutes later, you offer the same solution and everybody thinks it's the best idea they've ever heard. Okay. Yep. Now, a lot of times you could sort of go to the woman and you could say, well, you clearly weren't communicating it in a clear way or in a forceful way. And there might be, you know, some, some, in, some interesting and informative messages about that. But again, if that happens again and again, what's the message to me? My contribution is not valued. Sure. And what woman is going to stay in an organization where what she's taught, what she's messaged is, we don't value your experience or your expertise. Sure. Well, I mean, I you know, I've I've been in journalism and, and media now for sort of quarter of a century, really, and and worked with you know all sorts of different organisations and different people, and many of those situations that you have outlined there, I've probably been at the you know the receiving end of as as well as male, and I'm I'm just wondering how do we how do we necessarily distinguish between you know, what's sort of blatant sexual discrimination or just the sort of, you know, unfortunate realities of working in, in sometimes, you know, fast-paced and stressful environments where people can be cut off quickly and and, and, and people of all creeds, genders and races um, can find themselves, you know, to your earlier example, um, not being given credit for something that, that they should be given credit for. Mm-hmm. So, so what you're asking the question of is work is generally a stressful place and it, it certainly people can be, don't yeah. always have the time and the space. They don't yeah. have the time and the space to think about, okay, how can, you know, how should I pr- approach this? Who am I approaching? So, yeah, yeah. so things just get said, things just get done. And, and your question is, where's that line? Yeah. Well, that line is defined by two, by two elements. Sure. One element is, is, for so the person who's doing the marginalizing, mm. what's their intention? Sure. And sometimes it's it's there's no intention. It's just it it just came out. It yeah. it 
I didn't even, I had, I, 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 I really respect this person. I'm not trying to communicate any message mm. because a lot of times the things that we do are unconscious. And we, that's why we call, that's why they call it unconscious bias training because these things are just sort of, they're, they're under the surface and every once in a while they, they pop out and we don't recognize them. Sure. But sometimes there's intention. Yeah. You know, there are, there are people who do not believe that certain people belong in their work, in their work environment, that Mm -hmm. they don't have the technical acumen in IT. They don't have the business savviness to be in front of the business partners. And so there's intention to it. So part of the line is what's your intention if you're doing the marginalizing. But the other part of the line is is for the person who is being marginalized, what's your interpretation of that? You know, somebody might say something to two different women and one woman might take offense to it and another woman might not. And that's, and that's where the lines are. So it's both what's the intention mm. and then what's the effect. Sure. And now regretfully, you realize both of those post the activity. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, that's where the, but that's where the learning happens. Well, look, I mean, we could, um, you know, almost all of the CIOs that we've interviewed for CIO.com and, and, you know, more recently for the CIO show, both female and male, CIOs have expressed a, a desire to, um, you know, have more women working on their teams. I wonder what, you know, what would your advice for those CIOs be, Christy, in terms of, um, you know, this this retention issue and avoiding these kind of kind of conflicts and and being more alert to this these so called intentions. So it's really uncomfortable. Mm. A when you when you experience when you're in a group setting Mm -hmm. and maybe it becomes really obvious that somebody is feeling marginalized, Mm -hmm. you know, I always say when there's that uncomfortable laugh (laughs) in a dynamic, (laughs) probably because somebody somewhere uh, was, you know, either, either didn't respond well to something or something wasn't put out really well. Um, So that's uncomfortable. And then confronting is, is uncomfortable. And so I talk about five steps to confront behavior and it starts with recognizing the behavior which believe it or not is sometimes the hardest part if you are not the person being marginalized you might not notice it yeah sure and so educating ourselves on what are the most common things that happen Mm -hmm. um and i'm obviously going to talk specifically about women but i know i gave you three examples of you know Things, things that can happen. So you have to recognize the behavior. Yeah. But here's what you can do when you see the behavior and you're in a group setting. Yeah. Um, first, you address it publicly. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's just pretend I'm going to keep going through that my idea mm-hmm. example where, you know, I, I had an idea and then five minutes later you said that idea. Yeah. So let's say that, you know, uh, you, another person is in, is in the room mm-hmm. and they see this happen. They can say, Hey, you know what? Let me jump in there. I think Christy just said that. Yeah. Uh, I'm kind of worried that maybe we're not listening to each other. So yeah. let's, let's do a better job of that. Okay. Let's go forward. Yeah. That's all you have to do. Notice that didn't turn into a 20 minute lecture, yeah. right? But yeah. it was re- label the behavior and, and, and stop it. That's, that's the second step. So if you recognize it, you then address it publicly. Mm-hmm. Third, then 
either, you know, if you are in in a, in a position where you can, you either coach privately the person who was doing the marginalizing or you mention it to that person's manager. Um, and in this case, this is where I talk about how important it is to be clear about not making attribution. So sure. Lord only knows why you did that. Yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, maybe you really weren't listening. Yeah, yeah. I'm very sorry. I'm maybe, very, and I'm maybe very sorry. Were, <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you were multitasking. That well, kind of happens. Well, exactly. Especially yeah. in virtual meetings. Yes. <laughs> um, but, 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 but okay. But you say, hey, you know what? I, in this, in this meeting, David, it really just didn't kind of seem like you were paying attention to Christy. And, and here's, here's exactly what I saw, or here's what I was told happened, right? Yeah, yeah. Specific examples help, especially for the person who's unintentionally marginalized. And then, you know, sort of, hey, I'm sure it's not personal, but uh, personal, but I'm sure you understand that we need to create an inclusive environment. Mm-hmm. Then what you need to do is you need to support privately. So this is where hopefully somebody would come to come talk to me and say, hey, you know, I just want to let you know that I, I saw what David did. Are you okay? Like, how are you feeling about this? And you might get, yeah, I didn't really even understand what you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? But good information because then that wasn't something that made me feel marginalized, that second half of that. Mm-hmm. Or I might say, yeah, he does this to me all the time. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know what? We got to fix this. And that's yeah. not okay. Mm-hmm. Now, it's important to kind of stop and realize that you you know, there's a lot of things that you can't control in this situation, but think about how much it would matter to me to hear that, to, you know, to think about what has happened. You recognize the behavior. Mm. The person, you know, that person called you out on it, yeah. which is great. And that person has come to me and said, hey, I really don't like that. And I want to help. I want to help make sure that that doesn't happen again. Yeah. You are countering the message to me that I get, that the organization doesn't care mm. and doesn't value it. Sure. And then just the fifth step um, is is that, you know, there's sort of public affirmation that we as an organization really care about our employees mm-hmm. really matters. Um, and so I even specifically recommend that organizations create um, diversity and inclusion norms. Right. So norms are those sort of socially agreed upon ways that we're going to work together. And there's easy ones. Like, let's always seek to understand. Let's take turns. Let's listen generously. Let's remember that words matter. Um, those are just norms that you kind of refresh regularly and they give people language because now going back to our scenario, somebody could say, you know, hey, David, we need to listen generously. And that would trigger, a, oh, that's a norm of ours. Oops, what did I do? Yeah. Let, me, let me think about that. Sure. So confronting the behaviors matters. And I've worked with this on clients in IT mm. who, frankly, were very uncomfortable with this. You know, they're like, this is a space. I, I usually just try to get HR involved. Mm. But what most of them have come back to me and have said, you were right. For the most part, there wasn't an intention. Yeah. And just by calling it out, yeah. we fixed a lot of it. Yeah. So, of course, I have a few people, <laughs> but we fixed a lot of it. Well, it's good to hear. Well, Christy, thanks so much for um, for sharing those insights with us on the, on the CIO show, and we, we look forward to having you back on, on soon. All the best. I look forward to it. Thanks, David. And joining us to help close out this two-part uh, program on women in IT or women in tech is Bill Von Hippel, who's Professor of Evolutionary Psychology at the University of Queensland. Bill, welcome to the CIO Show. 
Thanks, David. Delighted to be here. Awesome. Now, there, there is obviously chronic underrepresentation of women in the mathematical engineering sciences and, and the technology industry globally, but there are some interesting reasons for this in your view. Yeah, so women are definitely underrepresented in all the tech side of the discipline, mm. the parts of sciences that are very mathematical, but women are not underrepresented in science writ large. Mm. So if you look at, for example, PhDs that are being given out, women get far more PhDs than men do in the social sciences. Right. They get about the same many PhDs as men do in the life sciences. Yeah. And then they're underrepresented in the um, sciences that are more math intensive, like uh, math, computer science, physics, chemistry, etc. Sure. So if you look at the data, mm. um, there's lots of ways to pull it apart. But one of the ways you can pull it apart is how math focuses the field. And when you do that and you draw you draw a vertical or a horizontal line, I guess you'd say, between across all the areas of science and say, what's the percentage of women who are in them? And what's the average math scores of the people who are in them? You actually end up with a line that um, runs diagonally across your screen where the lower the average math score of the people in the field, the greater the percentage of women. It's almost a perfect regression line. Right. And so there's two ways to interpret those data. One possibility is, well, women just aren't very good at math. And so they don't go into the math intensive fields because they're not as good at it on average. Mm. But there's another possibility, which is not that women aren't as good at, at math, but rather that they're just not as interested in math. Yeah, absolutely. And, mm. and there's some really interesting data that suggests that maybe interests are at the heart of the matter here. So mm. this is a study run out of the University of Pittsburgh, and they followed up something like 1,500 people over quite a long period of time to see them when they're in high school mm. and then see what careers they choose when they get into their 30s. Mm. And what they found was that you could divide the sample into people who are really good at math and um, also really good at verbal skills mm. and people who are really good at math, but not so good verbally. Yep. Now, they, you could also divide them people who stink at math, but we're not following them because they're not going into the math <laughs> and science fields anyway. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> so, so we're only looking at people who are really good at math. Yeah. Now, it turns out that if you're really good at math and you're not so good verbally, then um, about 50% of those people go on into a science field, a, a you know, math science kind of field by the time they're 33. Yeah, right. But if you're really good at math and you're really good verbally, only about a third of those people go into math science fields right. by the time they're in their 30s. Yeah. Now, what's interesting about it is that if you look within those two ability profiles, men and women with those profiles are equally likely to go into a math field. So if you have a man or a woman who's really good at math and not so good verbally, they're equally 50% likely to go on into a STEM field. Right. But it turns out that people who are really good at math and not so good verbally are way more likely to be men. They're about two and a half times as likely to be male as they are female. Yeah. Whereas people who are really good at math and really good verbally are actually twice as likely to be female as they are to be male. Now that is extraordinary, isn't it? Well, it is extraordinary, but it also speaks to this difference that we see all over the world, which is that in every single country that you look in, the, and you and you measure people's ability profiles. Yeah. And obviously, in all these cases, we're talking about averages, right? Because yeah. yeah. um, there's always exceptions. But if you look at their ability profiles in every single country, you find that women, on average, are better verbally than they are mathematically, yeah. and men, on average, are better mathematically than they are verbally. Sure. And so, so what that means is that when you do get women who are really high in math skills, they tend to also be really high verbal skills. Yeah, it's interesting, Whereas isn't it? Whereas when you get men who are really high math skills, they may or may not have really high verbal skills. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's no. only interesting from the point of view of, you know, this discussion about the, I mean, the proportion of women in the tech industry is low, um, but the proportion mm -hmm. of women in leadership roles is exceedingly low. It's about half. Mm -hmm. um, yep. But when you, you think about this, you know, this correlation between 
you know, women with super high abilities with mathematics and, and being more likely to also have um, fantastic communication skills. That really does sort of reshape this conversation about the, you know, the, 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 the worthiness or the, um, you know, the, women being qualified to be technology leaders, which is another, which is a really key yeah, point so, in this conversation. You know. Yeah, so women are super well prepared to be technology leaders by yeah. virtue of the fact that when they are in tech, they tend to have better verbal skills than men do. Yeah. Um, on average, mind you, a third of the men who go into tech also have really good verbal skills. <laughs> yeah, sure. but, but I would say that, that the key thing to understand here is that, first of all, when you're, re- when you're really good at math, but you're also really good verbally, what mm. the data suggests is you're voting with your feet and not going into tech-oriented industries. So on yeah. average, tech industries don't attract people who have really good verbal skills, yeah. on average. Yeah. And on average, they tend to be women. Now, there's one other barrier, though, as far as becoming a leader, and that is how focused are you on your career? How many hours do you put into it? Sure. And there's another study, a really lovely one, that's followed people up now for, I don't know, almost 40 years. Really? Where they looked at, they looked at people who scored, when they were 13 years old, they took a test that you usually don't take till you graduate from high school, and they scored in the top um, 0.1%. So these kids are like one in 10,000 kids, super duper smart. It's scary smart and they, kids. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they yeah. follow them now until they're in their 50s. Mm. And what we see when we look at those samples, so these are kids who've grown up to be, you know, all sorts of fancy jobs. And it's important to remember that they could do anything they want. They're super duper smart and yeah. they typically make a lot of money. Yeah. But despite that, the men tend to work about 10 hours per week more than the women do on the job. And the women tend to work about 10 hours per week more than the men do at home. Now, these are men and women who could easily hire out any chores that they want done because the 10 hours extra they're spending a week at home doing that housework, they make so much money that it would be, if, if they don't like to do it, yeah. they could easily have somebody in their home doing it. Oh, that's Similarly, yeah. these super smart women also about, if my memory is right, something like um, 10 to 15% of them, when the child was born, they, they quit work for a while and just stayed home with the kids. Whereas among the men, it was less than 1% who did that. Right. Now, I don't know. I can't get inside their head and know that society forced them to do that or whatever. Yeah. But I can tell you, I, I'm a strong believer in human agency. Yeah. And when you've got people who've got the wherewithal financially and intellectually to have any kind of help they want, mm. and yet lots of women are choosing to work less hours at work so they could be more hours at home. Lots of women are choosing to take time off work in order to raise their kids. Yeah. I think that that's part of the story why women end up being less likely to be in leadership roles because they're simply putting less hours in at work. And these are and these are people that are in a position to make whatever choices they want. That's the point, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's really fascinating. Well, it also sort of speaks to that interesting fact that uh, in countries where it, uh, like such as Sweden, where there is you know very very generous uh, sort of childcare uh, provisions, you don't have this you know corresponding. Um, uptick in in women getting involved in tech as people might expect and then uh, as you've noted as well in, in in previous articles and conversations that we've had you know looking at at countries um in um i think there were some middle eastern countries that you might have highlighted remember iran was mm-hmm. one of them where you know there isn't particularly good um you know, child care you have high proportions of women you know studying stem and working in tech it's just it's i think the challenge yeah. challenges a lot of assumptions it is. It's quite remarkable. So like Finland and Norway, for example, which are off the scale as far as gender equality are concerned, yeah. um, Netherlands, those kinds of countries, they have the fewest percentage of women graduating in STEM in the entire world. Yeah. And in contrast, if you look at Algeria, Tunisia, the United Arab Emirates, Turkey, yeah. Yeah. you've got countries where 
women have nowhere near the same level of opportunities that men have, and yet they have the highest percentage of women graduating in STEM. Yeah. And the best, to the best of our knowledge, what's going on here is that if you live in Finland, Norway, the Netherlands, you know, you could, you'll, you'll be a success financially, even if you decide to be a poet or some very verbal kind of career that, that doesn't usually guarantee a great income mm. because the society itself is so wealthy. Yeah. Whereas if you go to Algeria, Tunisia, the United, uh, Turkey, places like that, if you are good at STEM, you ought to be pursuing it because it's almost a guaranteed way to at least be a success in that country right. because there's a lot of inequality and it's harder to make it there. Yeah. And so remember that earlier data I showed you where women who are good verbally, and, men and women who are good verbally and um, good at math tend not to go into STEM fields. Where in countries like that, if you're good at STEM fields, you're not going to be a poet because you can't make a living being a poet in that country, but you can make a living being an engineer. Yeah. So rather ironically, the less gender equality there is, the poorer the childcare, the more we see women going into STEM fields. And, and what these data tell me is that women are they are voting with their feet. They're making the choices they want to make, and they're not being held out of it by prejudice. They're not being held out of it by discrimination, even though there are still pockets of that here and there. But that's not the underlying problem. The underlying problem is really one of what do they want to do. Yeah. And so if you, you know, if, you, if you believe the prejudice argument or the being held back argument, then you'd, you'd have to ask yourself, well, why is it that they've gone from you know, 10% of the graduates and PhDs in life sciences in 1970 to over 50% today? You know, are, you, are you, the biologists somehow weren't sexist in the 70s, but the computer scientists are sexist in the 90s or, or 2010s? Yeah. It doesn't seem plausible to me. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, as 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 everybody has indicated throughout, you know, this this uh, conversation in part two, and obviously the panel conversation we had in part one, you know, there was a startlingly low proportions of of women working working in tech. But what is the correct number? I guess remains to be seen, and and yeah. it seems as though yeah, there's a lot of a lot of wrong assumptions that are that are being challenged. We hope in this in this program and. And perhaps um, you know further down the track, reframing of of the questions. Bill, really appreciate your time, and thanks so much for joining us on the CIO show. When we look forward to having you back on again soon. Totally, my pleasure, David. Great to chat with you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Now, it's an assumption that has been allowed to grow largely unchecked for some time. However, the jury is officially still out on whether public cloud infrastructure is actually cheaper than running on-premises data centres. In our next episode, we'll have a number of Australian CIOs and other experts sharing with us their thoughts and experiences in moving IT from CapEx to OpEx, financial realities over time and the best options for maximising ROI. We hope you can join us. 